As we return this morning to the book of John's Revelation, one of the things that has stood out to me, um, especially this past week, have been the similarities between studying the book of Esther and studying the book of John's Revelation, particularly the first three chapters. And that is, it answers the question, how are Christians supposed to live in this world and at the same time recognize that we belong to a kingdom that is Christ and Christ alone, a kingdom that is God's? That's a difficult question to answer, namely because... Well, there's a lot of opinions that float around. Some people say to live in God's kingdom simply means that we should recognize God in all that we do and our mind should be consumed by Him. But frankly speaking, what we do in the world should look just like everyone else's life. With the exception, of course, that we have Christian joy, we have Christian peace, we have Christian hope. I disagree with those, and I believe the Bible supports me in refuting that claim that the Christian's life in this world should mirror everyone else's. Particularly as we consider the last two letters, the one that we're looking at today and the one that we looked at last week to the church in Pergamum and the church in Thyatira. We'll be looking at the church in Thyatira today. But just to recapture what has been thematic in all of these letters... Jesus has given John, the apostle, this special revelation, this unveiling, this disclosure of who he is. And it's a different image than the one that we are used to. And I think we should get comfortable with this new image of Christ because this is the image of Christ as he is temporarily today, glorified in heaven. We do not worship like Ricky Bobby would have us to worship baby Jesus in a manger. Neither do we worship Mel Gibson's depiction of Christ upon the cross. We worship a glorified Savior who has ascended into heaven. One who comes with white hair like wool, a long robe, a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice is like the roar of many waters. In his right hand held seven stars from his mouth and a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We worship a glorified Savior. The one described in Revelation chapter 1 where I was just reading was verse 13 to 16. This is the Christ that we worship. What are we to do with that? One of the foundational doctrines of the church is that we believe that Christ established the church. I say it's foundational because it only makes sense. If we're going to talk about a foundational doctrine of the church, we should talk about the teaching that undergirds its very existence. Christians do not gather with called-out assemblies for the purpose of preserving our faith. We don't even gather for the purpose of, of just having a club of support. Christians gather because it is by the command of Christ that He has established this body. And that He has established every body of like faith as we see in the various letters to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, Paragamum, and Thyatira. We would go on to the church in Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Might even add the church in Greenwood. How could we forget First Baptist Jerusalem? I'm going to make you guys laugh before I get going, just so you know. Eventually, you will learn to appreciate my dry humor. God has established all of these bodies for the purpose that He would be glorified. But what is the church? Does the church exist so that we can have a place in the world? Or or does the church exist as an outpost for the kingdom of God? Those of us who have traveled abroad or have visited different places, we always keep, what do you keep right there with your passport when you travel abroad? The address of the nearest U.S. Embassy, right? You should. 
If you were to get into any trouble, I would hope that you know where your nearest consulate is. Unless you're there, you know, for, for a particular mission, I, I, that's something I keep in mind anytime I'm outside of the country. I want to know where the U.S. Embassy is. As Christians, we don't say that our citizenship, belong, citizenship belongs anywhere on earth. We say that our citizenship belongs in the kingdom of heaven. Where is your nearest embassy? It is in the church. The church is the outpost for the Christian living in this world. It is the outpost for the resident alien that dwells on foreign soil, that abides by the laws and the authorities that God establishes through His sovereignty, but recognizes that their citizenship is in heaven with this glorified Christ. As we turn to the church in Thyatira, what I want to call our attention to is that this is almost an escalation of the failings of the church in Pergamum, Where the church previously was guilty of perhaps compromise, the church in Thyatira has escalated and it is guilty of being not just compromising, but being corrupted. It is possible for even an outpost to be corrupted. Jesus doesn't just offer words of condemnation, neither does He offer words of compliment in the beginning, as we have seen has been the, the structure of these letters, but He offers at the end, I think more pointedly, the most expressed encouragement for Christians today, something that we should pay strict attention to. But before we can get to that word of encouragement, we must read the whole letter so that we might understand it. I'd ask you to pray with me that God would help us to understand this letter, not just as it is written, but that in understanding it as it was written to the original audience existing in the first century in a real place in the Asia area, we would also be able to apply it to our circumstances and situations today. With that in mind, let us pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would guide us this morning as we turn to your word. Give us the words, Lord, to be able to express these things clearly that all might be able to understand them. God, as we reflect on the reality that what you have written to the church in Corinth, who can understand the spirit of a man, but the spirit of that man. Who can understand the words of you, Lord, without your spirit? And so, God, we call upon you and ask that your spirit would be with us to help us to understand your words, Lord, to give heed to your words. Open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the wondrous truth found in your law. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Beginning then in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, I pray your Bibles would be open with me as I read out loud and that you would read along with me. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers, 
and who keeps my works until the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots and broken are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We begin then by observing this church in Thyatira. Ironically, the longest letter so far that we have studied is written to the smallest and perhaps even the least significant politically in the Roman Empire. Thyatira was a place located just a little bit south of Paragamum, but it was politically insignificant. It was not a place where Roman worship was prominent, as we have seen at the church in Smyrna and the church in Paragamum, this place where the Roman emperor commanded and conscripted upon the people that in order to participate in business in the world that they lived in, they had to make a, an incense offering on an altar and say, Caesar is Lord. This is very different. The church in Thyatira has no seat or temple for Caesar's worship. Rather, it's known because it's a place for commerce. It's a place for booming business. And, and what I think is just mind-boggling about this, of all the other cities that we might look at and view or even try to investigate with archaeological evidence, the church in Thyatira has more evidence in history than any of the other cities, despite the fact that it was the most insignificant because it was a place for trade. And we find evidence of that trade. It was a place where textile goods would have been sold. You, you want wool, soft clothing? This is where you would find it. Linen, this is where you would find it. Dyes, this is where you would find it. And most likely what would take place is you would buy these things in bulk at Thyatira and you'd take them to another place and sell them. Where am I coming up with that? If you remember back in Acts chapter 16, more specifically verse 14, you'll remember that there was a woman named Lydia. And Lydia came to the area of uh, Philippi. She heard Paul preaching and proclaiming the Word of God. And she, she humbled herself. She recognized that this was authoritative. And, and she began to be a follower of Christ. And perhaps we might even speculate that because Lydia is said to be from Thyatira, and she was a seller of purple goods. That's how she made her business. That was her business. So we might speculate that she might have been the first seed after hearing Paul preach and in Philippi, she might have came back to Thyatira, and she may have even been the first seed that started this church. That's all speculation. Um, but, but we see this connection of how churches are being planted and how they're connected. And, and one of the things that we see is in this booming area for industry, a called-out assembly of God took shape. As with the other churches, the saints that are in Christ are in Thyatira just as we claim to be in Christ and are presently in Greenwood, Arkansas. This is, this is what calls our attention to the fact that Christians must not only live among the world, but we must belong to Christ. Jesus introduces himself to this church. He says in verse 18, the words of the Son of God whose eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, all of the introductions that we've seen so far have drawn attention to different characteristics of Christ that are relevant to the letter that he's writing. I think there's two things we should observe from this introduction that Jesus Christ gives himself. Actually, three. First, this is the only place in the book of Revelation that... Jesus is identified as the Son of God. You have to do your homework to fact check me, but this is calling attention to His deity. He shares the attributes of God. He is God. He has eyes like a flame of fire. We discussed this in greater length um, when we looked at Revelation chapter 1, the second half. But if you weren't here that evening when we reviewed that, the eyes of fire indicate that Jesus has a gaze that is not limited by the light that is in a room. Now consider for a moment your limitation. If you walk into a dark room, you can't see. Now, there's a physical component that limits you from being able to see things clearly. Now, if the room is well lit, 
If there's illumination in that room, you see things clearly, you see color. Some of us have even experienced some of the degenerative defects of age and know what it means to have our image clouded. Jesus Christ, when He perceives things, is the illumination to see those things. That means when Jesus Christ views a church, He doesn't see what is hidden behind walls. He doesn't see what is hiding behind false intentions. He doesn't see what is deceptive. He doesn't see the good face we would like to put out on display for the public. He sees the brokenhearted. He sees the weary. He sees the struggles. He sees the trials. And that also implies that He sees the false intentions. He sees the deceptions. He sees the lies. And He sees the misdeeds. He sees the guilt. He doesn't need an external illumination because His eyes are the illumination. The Word of God is the very light set out for the Christian. And in the same way, when Jesus Christ views the church as He has done so far in this book, when He views the church in Thyatira, there is no hiding. Jesus sees clearly. I often wonder what's going on with Christians that, that do not see the importance of repentance in their life. It even seems that it's become commonplace to when we discuss repentance to only connect it to the idea of conversion, that you must be repentant to be converted, to become a Christian. Repentance doesn't stop with salvation. Repentance continues on from salvation because walking with God means that we recognize that there is no hiding from Him. He will judge us according to our intentions as well as our deeds. That means that even if we do what looks right on the outside with bad intentions, He will judge us for that. He goes on to say and describe Jesus as He whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, As we discuss this looking at Revelation chapter 1, I I mentioned several things and I'm going to try to stay away from that rabbit hole because we've got lunch coming up after this sermon, don't we? And we have things that we want to do. So so I won't dive into that. It's been recorded and I'll, I'll suggest to you that if you would like more on that, you can go listen to our church's podcast where that sermon is recorded. I will call attention to the fact that this feat of burnished bronze not only calls attention to his authority in the one that is able to be worshipped, like an altar, but also his immovability. Christ does not move. His stance and his positions on things are well-founded. He's all truth. He does not vacillate. He does not seek what is right and what is wrong and change opinions like the mind of men. He is truth. He's authoritative. It also brings to mind the image of of someone wearing, and in my mind it's medieval armor, and so I know that this is wrong because we're nowhere near the medieval period whenever John's writing this, and neither in our context are we anywhere near that. But I see the image of a warrior getting ready to go into battle. Not only does he have authority, not only is he able to judge or discern clearly, but he's also the one who is able to stand for the truth that he is. Keep those things in mind as we look at what Jesus has to say to this church. In verse 19, he says, I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance. All of these things that are characteristic of a New Testament church, that they emulate love. Not just love the way that some people would want love to be ascribed, but real, genuine, and sincere Christian love. Compassion when they show the concern for those, even those that are lost into the the grips of sin. Christians who love understand what it means to be in bondage because we remember where we once came from. I know your faith. That is the ability to look beyond present circumstances and to know the one that secures our future. I know your service. The people of God who are not yet in the kingdom of God in heaven are people who serve. Because we believe at a a deep-seated level, 
as a motivation for everything that we do. That God has left us here for a reason. I, I really struggled with this as a young Christian. I thought about what Paul wrote in Philippi, to live as Christ and to die as gain. I often wondered, God, I've been saved, and just to be honest with you, I don't like this world a whole lot. Why is it not possible that you just let me leave? What do I have to lose? If I really believe everything that is written in your word, God, what do I have to lose? As I grew in my faith and what, what I mean by that is not that necessarily I understood everything all at once, but that I believe that God was sovereign and that if He was leaving me here, there must be a purpose for it. And I realized that the motivation for Christians on earth pivots around this idea of service. Not being served, but in being one who serves, being one who provides. In fact, even God giving saints spiritual gifts, all of these things, He does so, so that we would have the ability to serve others. He's given us a reason. Well, when does this expire? Does it expire whenever my physical abilities no longer permit me to serve? By no means. Until the day that God brings us home, we are to be people who serve, utilizing our gifts for His glory. At military funerals, they recognize those that have served our country by placing our nation's flag over the coffin. And it's a beautiful tribute. I can sit through a funeral even of close friends and not shed a tear. I've never been able to go to a funeral where military honors have been presented and not been able to cry. The Christian must imagine his life as a life of equal service. I even know a friend that when he died, he said he wanted the Christian flag draped over his coffin and presented to his children so that they would remember that he was one that served the kingdom of God. We do not retire from Christian service. We graduate from it. I know your patient endurance. And, and I, this patient endurance, is, it really captures everything that exists so far, that there would be love, that there would be faith, that there would be service, because in all of these things, if you know what it means to love someone, you know that it requires patient endurance. And if you don't know that, perhaps you haven't loved someone. I've never loved somebody that I've, it's always been easy to love them. Am I surprising some of you by saying that? Except for Michelle, sorry Michelle, you're always easy to love. As long as I've got a loaf of bread next to me. And that's a joke only Michelle gets. You guys don't get that joke. It's not always easy to love fallen people. It requires patient endurance. It requires, in fact, patient endurance, another translation for this would be long-suffering. Endurance requires even being able to take what would feel like inflicted punishment. To love someone requires this kind of patience. To be faithful to God requires this endurance. Consider the church in Smyrna experiencing persecution, being ready to be thrown in prison, and they are told to be patient and to endure. To serve somebody requires patient endurance. And this is where I think the church really gets off and out of step with Christ. You see, even in the most traditional of settings, we have an idea of what it means to be a Christian. And we have, dare I say, even like the Pharisees, have set up our very own list of rules that are the most important for us. And we believe that in order to be a true and genuine Christian, to join the church, you must follow all of these rules. 
The real condemnation with this type of an attitude is that we neglect patient endurance in the fact that we do not believe that we are the ones who are able to save people by giving them a list of rules to follow, but that Christ is able to transform them under the faithful preaching of His Word. To really be a Christian even means that we would endure attitudes that reflect that of the world for the sake of Christ's glory. And I love what Jesus says next. That of your latter works exceeds the first. I'm struck sometimes when I go to missions meetings and for those of you that aren't aware, our church is associated with the Baptist Missionary Association, which means that we have a participation and a place at various different entities, and, and we work together with other churches to send missionaries places, and, and we believe fundamentally in the authority of the local church, the autonomy of the local church. And so as a part of this, missionaries are not sent by this association, they're sent by churches. I recently went to a missionary committee meeting where we're sending a missionary. And again, as I've seen in years past, the missionary that is being sent is coming from a church that was previously a, a mission church. You know what's really sad? It's the youngest churches in our association that send the most missionaries. The older churches, the established ones, where is the first works that got us started? Where is the endeavor to see our neighbors saved? Where is our zeal to pursue Christ and to proclaim His Word? It should not be the youngest ones. Paul gives us the example that in 1 Timothy, that the younger are supposed to be learning from the older, and he's speaking of this in individual terms, but would it not also be true of the church? Should not younger churches be learning from the older, well-established churches? But this isn't the case. Why not? We'll have to talk about that later. Right now we're just looking at the church in Thyatira, which seems not to have followed this model, but rather has increased in their works in the latter days, the most recent days. This church has continued to grow and continued to work and continued to have faith and continued to have patient endurance. And in these last days, these works seem greater than even the works that first established them. And when we come to verse 20... We have to change gears. Now, we should be used to this. I mean, just imagine for a moment that Jesus was able to take the roof off of our church and peer into all of our hearts. I imagine that we would not be exempt from having some sort of word of condemnation against us. Even reading in this letter, so this revelation of John in the series of letters that Jesus has instructed him to write to these seven churches, we, we are somewhat familiar with the turn of phrase that eventually after a word of compliments or, or we find the word but. However, nevertheless, verse 20 says, but I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel. I said it was important that the church have patient endurance. But Jesus has this against the church in Thyatira, that they tolerate that woman Jezebel. You have to do this for homework. I'm not going to get distracted like I did last week. Look in First and Second Kings and you'll find the story of Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, who did not have the strength nor the endurance to deal with a rebellious wife. She inflicted upon Israel perhaps the greatest in all of their history, the greatest descent into worldliness. She convinced them essentially to divorce on two separate sides, what it means to believe in God and to behave like a believer. She contaminated Israel with a system of thought that was divorced from religion and morality. She said, you can believe one thing and know God and act however you want, and these two things are completely separate. They're not. 
What we believe comes out in the way that we behave. We see this today. It doesn't just say that you tolerate her, but Jesus says she's one who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. You see this very same thing, and this is the worst part. She calls herself a prophetess. Not only is she one that is advocating that our faith and our behavior are two separate entities, but she is doing it under the the presupposition or under the auspices of God's own word. She's saying the Lord says, as the prophets have said in the past, that these things are separate. She's abusing God's grace. She is literally convincing these people. She's, the word used, seducing. She is drawing them in. She is drawing them in to practice two things are named. Sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Eating food sacrificed to idols is a complicated issue in the New Testament. Complicated in the sense that we have liberty in Christ. That under grace and under the law of grace, under as the church is today, we have personal soul liberty. We can judge and discern for ourselves what is right. And Paul warns us that if somebody feels convicted about something and they do it anyway, that to that person is sin. This idea of individual soul liberty condemns those that would view a particular thing as sin and then do it anyway. However, there are also those things that are not gray, those things that are black and white that God clearly condemns, such as sexual immorality. And you see, one leads to the other. When we play games with our liberty, it often leads us to falling into the temptation of what has been Satan's greatest allurement since the beginning of time. It leads us into sexual immorality. A carnal behavior, an instinctive behavior, a fleshly desire to feed the things that have no business being fed if we are being conformed in the image of Christ. This false teacher using the Lord's name to draw distinction between things that deserve no distinction draws the people into believing that they can go to church on one day of the week or two days of the week or three days of the week or maybe every single day of the week for a particular, you know, some hours in the evening time and that they can go out into the world and that the rest of the time they simply live as the rest of the world lives. They can participate in the same clubs. That would be the guilds, the trade guilds that existed at the time that Jesus is having this letter written. They could participate in business the way that people participate in business in the world. Lying to one another, cheating with one another, deceiving one another, playing political games. There's nothing more despicable than the fact that in the largest organizations in our country... Political games are played inside their very own walls. I worked for a large company at one time. I'm no stranger to this. I know it to be true. And I think it's even true for smaller companies. I think it's despicable that people that are playing for the same team compete with one another. We even see this in the church. People that are supposed to be on the same team as Christ compete with one another, jockeying for positions of leadership. Our concept of leadership must be shaped by the Bible because the concept of biblical leadership is one of service. Do as the world does. Be a Christian the rest of the time. This is the trap. This is the condemnation. This is what Jesus is addressing. This is what has corrupted the church in Thyatira. He goes on. Verse 22, he says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Notice the turn of phrase here. The, The judgment matches the crime, as it were. 
She's allured those to practice sexual immorality. Apparently that would mean that they spent a lot of time in their beds. And the judgment is you're going to spend more time in your bed, but it's not going to be fun. It'll be a sick bed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works. This idea that the judgment of God would cause physical ailments is not something we should be unfamiliar with. Paul makes the same claim in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30 when he says that some of you are weak and some of you are ill and some have died because of your unfaithfulness. God will judge His people. And, and He does this with a purpose. I will, I will do this. I will even strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. He does this as a warning for the churches that are, the, these letters would have been circular, right? So all of these churches would have seen these similar letters. The church in Smyrna would have been encouraged by this. They, they would have seen what was happening here, and they would have been warned against what even would have been a bustling church, a church that was growing in the latter works of love, faith, and service, and patient endurance, even with all of these things a, 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 a vibrancy and a, even a zeal as you come in and you visit with people. Those aren't the marks of a sincere and genuine church. Those things exist because the marks of a true and genuine church that practices discernment the way that they should and conducts themselves in a way that glorifies God. I will throw her into great tribulation unless... Look, even as this judgment is being offered, look at the end of verse 22. There is the unless they repent of her works. These false teachers still have at their disposal the ability to repent before God, to come before Him humbly, and to turn away from their false claims. Verse 23 always startles me when I read this. I will strike her children dead. The Bible teaches that the judgment of the father should not be passed unto his children. But even looking as far back as Genesis 10 and looking at the fact that, and this might be a bit of a rabbit hole, so bear with me for a little bit and then we'll get caught back up. But when we look at the sin of Ham, whenever he dishonored his father Noah, and Noah stands up and he curses Canaan, that's Ham's youngest child. We see these Scenes and, and we wonder what could it possibly be. And it's not that God is permitting judgment upon the descendants of the Father for the crimes of the Father. It's that we must recognize that our own parents are the ones that have passed on sin to us. And what that means is that the sin of my father, I am more predisposed to fall into that as a trap. That means that the sin of your parents is most likely the sin that you struggle with the most in your life. And when God says that He will judge the children, or in this case, that He will kill even her children, He's saying, I will judge those that follow in your path, that do these sins and do not turn away from them. But all the while, we are reminded that unless they repent, is there for hope. In fact, for the church, it's there for hope that these people would truly be repentant. It's, it's my hope that I would be able to turn away from the sins of my father. It's my hope that I would be able to not follow in his footsteps. That I would follow the steps of my heavenly father who is in heaven. I will strike her children dead. Those who follow her, I will strike them dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Verse 24, He changes. We see the judgment that He offers this. We see, again, another contraction in verse 24. He says, But 
to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching. It's not the whole church that's been corrupted, but it is the whole church that's being condemned. Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. I know I'm not the only person that has set out on my Christian pilgrimage and said, I would like to know the deep things of God. I know I'm not the only person that has ever sat under the faithful preaching of God's word and said, that's all well and good. I understand that you're feeding the sheep, but, you know, I'm smarter than most of them, so give me the good stuff. No, I'm not the only person that has set out to understand more than what, it, than what is on the surface. Jesus' encouragement to these people that are in the church that are not holding to these false teachings, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, is simply to remember that he does not lay on them any other burden. You see, friend, the main things in the Bible are the plain things. Going out on a quest for what we might call the deep things can actually get us in a lot of trouble. Because what ends up happening is you, you begin to ascribe significance to the colors, significance to the numbers, significance to things that really are not all that significant. I've never heard a false teacher that doesn't have to dance around adjectives in order to support his claims. Likewise, I've never heard a faithful teacher that needed to spend time diving into such nuance that they can't simply proclaim that the gospel is there for all people that would put their faith in God and that if they repent of their past deeds and come to Him and make them Lord of their life, that He's faithful to save them. And it's not by their own works that they're able to overcome the sins of their fathers, but by the grace of God that they're able to do these things. Turns out that the main things are the plain things in Scripture. And even here, we could have an overreaction, an overzealous reaction to looking at what corruption or, or compromise in the church is, and we could fall into the trap of what, what would be called asceticism. That is the teaching that we must deny the flesh so much to the extent that we only think about spiritual things. And, and I think I'm even guilty of this. I, 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 in all honesty, I struggle to have a conversation with people. And I talk with friends and they talk about, you know, their acts of evangelism. They go to the football game and they lean up against the fence and they talk with the old timers about the good times. And I wonder, you know, I'm just not able to do that. My mind is always jumping off and thinking about the Bible in some way, thinking about God's revelation, thinking about what God has done for me. And I want every conversation I have to be about that. And, and, and I get bored when people don't want to talk about that. And, and that's the wrong attitude. Because God has given us the flesh. Not that we might follow it in a sexual immorality, but the reality is that, that even sex in the confines of the way that the Bible has given it to us under the marriage bed of between one man and one woman is something that we can enjoy. In fact, Christian beds should be filled with this joy. Because it's something that we have. That God has given us. Likewise, even being able to eat food. I, I don't have to sprinkle ashes on my food lest my tongue enjoy it. I'm able to enjoy food. I put salt on it so that it tastes good. I cut into it so that it's delicious. I don't overindulge in it. Or maybe I do. I'm looking a bit more portly these days than I was at the beginning of the year. This is the point that in moderation, Christ has given us the joy of the things on this world. In fact, he's given us joy for all of these things. We, we should not overreact into the area of asceticism, but we should, as Christ says, remember that he has given us no other hardship, no other burden, no other um, yoke to, to lay around us. He has simply given us the call that is offered to us. 
He simply tells us in verse 25, only hold fast. Hold fast what you have until I come. To the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my father. The way to protect the purity of the church is to recognize Christ's patience even with those that would seek to compromise it. I think it's interesting that when addressing Jezebel, Jesus even says that he has been patient with her and given her the opportunity to repent. That even if she would repent, that he would not give her this judgment. And in all of this, what we're reminded of is the reality that Christ was patient even with false teachers. The problem is, and this is often the case anytime we talk about theological issues. You might imagine driving down a road and on one side of the road is a ditch, and on the other side of the road is a ditch. Well, one ditch, if we veer off this way, would be to following Jezebel and to simply letting her keep going, keep seducing others in the church, particularly young Christians. False prophets always prey on young Christians. And fall off into the ditch that way. Fall off onto the ditch this way, and, and we allow... And I'm not saying discernment ministry is wrong, but what I am saying is if that becomes the primary focus in everything that we do as a church, discerning those that are false teachers, that that's also the other side of the ditch. To, to, to fall all the way into asceticism or a way of worshiping God simply by denial. cannot overreact, but we must stay the course. Simply remain with the works that I have given you. Follow the path that Christ has given us. Follow Him in faithfulness, trusting in Him to allow false teachers to come to their senses. But by all means, if these teachers infiltrate the church, if these false teachers come into the church and they are proclaiming things that do not deserve to be proclaimed, then we must also remember that Christ has given to the church authority. And we have the authority to either censure false false teachers by telling them to shut their mouth or to eradicate false teachers by telling them that they are no longer welcome. And a church that rejects that and fails to be faithful to God in practicing the authority that, they is, that He has given to her is a church that has fallen in with Jezebel. Loved ones, the only authority that exists among Christian brothers and sisters is the very Word of God. If we neglect the Word of God in the way that we conduct ourselves, if we allow ourselves to do things that contradict it, then, then what we are actually following is not God. What we are actually worshiping is not the Creator. We are actually worshiping ourselves because we are saying that we are the ones that are able to judge what is right and what is wrong. The only authority... It is not the pastor. It is not any of the leaders in the church. It is not the church member that has the best education. It is the Word of God. This is the authority in every Bible study, in every Christian home, and in every church. There is nothing to be added to it because God says, only hold fast to what you have. And this is what we have. I believe Jesus Christ was the ultimate and perfect revelation of God on earth. He lived on earth in bodily form. He was born sometime around 3 AD. He died. He had a three-year ministry. He was crucified on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. He was resurrected on the third day and He ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. I believe these things because that's what the Bible says. I believe that He has, since the day of Pentecost, sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within the hearts of man that they would have guidance and the ability to understand the Word of God. That through this illumination that we have God's understanding before us and that we can take this and that it can be our guide, that it can be our directing path, it can be our regulative principle. But I do not believe that we need to add anything to it because the Word of God is simply sufficient. And that's a beautiful word. Sufficient, the word of God is sufficient. And this is what he's given to us. And he gives us a promise at the end of this letter. For those that would remain faithful in this way, he says that you will rule with him. 
This is the promise that God gives, that when the day of judgment comes, Christians will be sitting alongside Him, ruling the world. When the day of God's kingdom comes, Christians will be alongside the Son of God, ruling His kingdom, guided still by His principles. He grants us authority. And He will give them the morning star. That's in verse 28. This phrase, morning star, we should look no further than the book of Revelation to understand it. Revelation twenty two sixteen says that this very morning star is Jesus Christ Himself. This is the promise that He gives us, not only that we will be able to rule those who lead others astray, not only that we will be able to practice judgment and discernment on those that would be called Jezebel, but that we would be able to have Christ for ourselves. The final word given here is that he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As I look at this and I remember the importance of the church and I I remember these promises and I, I take them to heart and I apply them to my own life, I am encouraged to stay strong in the Lord. I'm encouraged to say, should we not stand for what deserves standing for? Should we not get distracted? Let's not add to what has been commanded. Let us grow in our faith. Let our last works, let our goal be that of Thyatira in the sense that our last works would be the greatest works that we possibly have to offer for God's kingdom. Let's be faithful in our prayers for one another as we recognize the responsibility that Christians have for each other. Let us be faithful to pray for the saints that we sit alongside week after week, supporting them and lifting them up that God would hold all things in control for them. Our Father in heaven, I simply pray that you would do the work that I cannot do. God, that those that have spiritual ears would be able to hear your word and know how to apply it. God, that you would give us a zeal for our church for the community that you've called us to, that you'd help us to recognize your purpose in all things and help us, Lord, to respond. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Would you stand with us?